Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Ann Spira, who serves as Vice Chancellor for Advancement and Executive Vice President for the University of San Diego Foundation at the University of California, San Diego. That is a mouthful. And I practiced it once and I was way smoother in practice. Either way, thank you for joining us. An absolute pleasure to be with you, Brent. Well, this is so fun. I cannot wait to learn more about your career and especially uh, learning more about your origins uh, as it relates to your own higher education journey. So take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that Anne and what led her to the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music, which I've heard described as the Harvard for public music education? I would agree with that. So, well, I have to tell you to begin with that I was absolutely enthralled, inspired, excited by the performing arts when I was growing up. My mother was on the leadership team of this very large multi-theater performing arts center in Milwaukee. It's called the Marcus Center for the Performing Arts. So when I was growing up, I got to see every Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra. I got to hear it every concert every opera, all the ballet, all the theater of Milwaukee Rep. So that was kind of in my blood, music and theater specifically. And I seemed to excel in music apparently, so specifically voice. I was encouraged by my teachers to pursue voice performance. And so from my sophomore, junior year on, I studied voice and piano at the, the Wisconsin Conservatory of Music. So I'd go to school all day, and then the afternoons, I'd go to the Wisconsin Conservatory. I was a pretty dedicated student. I love it. So tell me, though, like at what age are people like, Anne has an amazing voice? Like when did that first start? Um, my teachers started watching me really in junior high. And they sent me off to music camp and choral camp and all kinds of things uh, like that. But I was lucky enough to have some teachers who actually had gone to Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. And they just kept saying, if you go on this track, if we can help you learn this and find, uh, fine tune your technique, you'd be a candidate for that very selective school. And so the Marcus uh, Performing Arts Center, what was your favorite performance? I mean, I'm picturing like sometimes you hear the kid who's like, my dad was the football coach and I was always on the sidelines and then I became the star quarterback. Like that's you for music. Absolutely. I have to tell you, it was numerous concerts. One was Carmina Burana. Carl Orff's Carmina Burana, which is a choral piece, and it was of the Wisconsin Conservatory of Music Chorus with the Milwaukee Symphony, just lit my fire. I think any of the requiems um, just, you know, made my heart beat. I loved the opera. The Aida that I saw in Milwaukee was another turning point for me. So those are the kinds of things that I just loved. Love it. You're the second guest recently who uh, who has a connection to the opera, which is very fun because I don't know much about it, but I, I'm loving your your passion. I wish the Rays podcast had a soundtrack right now of everything you just described because it would it would liven things up. But but so tell me, ultimately, you had great. It sounds like coaching and mentorship and some uh, good hard work and dedication. But I got to be honest, like I love to sing, okay? But I've never had any formal lessons and. Um, it always makes me wonder how much better can people really get versus are you just born with it? Um, 
a lot of people are born with the tone, the depth of the voice, that kind of thing, the sound. But really, it is a technique that is learned. So when you, some people um, sing along to the radio or sing along to the records, and they can almost teach themselves some of that technique. But to really project, to be able to sing in a 3,000 seat house and project unamplified, because opera is never amplified, project over an 80 piece orchestra unamplified, that is a technique that one learns everything from the breathing to what you do with your tongue, your teeth, your larynx, and how you make that sound. Okay, so now I'm really interested in this. I hope at least uh, one listener is. No, I know that people are, because there's a lot of people that love arts and uh, advancement. Is this like, I'm going to give you two comparisons. One is golf, and the other is basketball. Okay, when pe- if people have never played basketball, and they decide to pick up basketball later in life, um, if you go to do five or 10 practices of basketball, at the end of those five or 10 practices, you're not going to be very good at basketball. Now, if you go and do five to 10 practices of golf, you might actually know how to hit a golf ball better than 80% or 90% of people. I'm, I'm making up the numbers, but my point is like, there are certain things that a little bit of practice can really unlock a lot of performance. Where is voice on that spectrum? Like if people are interested in becoming better singers, is it like, hey, with five or 10 lessons, Brent, you could become 50% better? Or is it like, no, it's basketball. It's going to take a you know year plus of dedication. And even then it could be a struggle. Such a great question. I love the sports analogies, but let me tell you, it's not a few lessons. It's not a year of lessons. Okay. It is years and years and years of lessons. Because you have to remember, not only is it the vocal technique, your bodies continue to change. And as your bodies mature, you've got to constantly kind of, you know, uh, rejigger your your technique and, and your coaches teach you how to do that. You're always going to have a lifelong coach, which was a great analogy for me in this business also, that you always need a, someone, a mentor, a coach. But we also have the issue of languages. Operas are in French, Italian, German, and English, but you're learning the diction and how the diction, if you're going to sing um, a high C, you really can't sing a high C going E because you'd have to open more than that. So you learn how to pronounce these different languages on all the different notes. So it's years and years of training. Well, that makes me uh, happy for you and sad for me. If you said it was five to 10 lessons like golf, I might've just signed up right after this. Who knows? Anyways, maybe there's a future uh, you know, hybrid scenario at least, but, but tell me about pursuing, uh, uh, not just about pursuing, tell me about the highlights of your experience with, uh, the Jacob school and, and then ultimately what led you to the university of Wisconsin, Madison. Great. Well, the highlight of my experience at the Jacob school of music is a number of components. They happen to have sort of a mini metropolitan opera facility on campus. So instead of 4,000 seats, it's 2,200 seats. But they have the five pneumatic stages at the Met. They have the quickest scene changes in all of opera because they can slide one pneumatic stage off and the other comes on. IU had that same setup. So you were really on the professional stage. And I got to sing Carmen and I got to sing some 
different roles on the stage to sort of sharpen my skills. I think that was truly my highlight. It was also exceptionally stressful, um, you know, to the, the quality of excellence at that university is very, very high. So I was always a little uh, nervous and had a lot of anxiety getting on stage. But once I did, it was clicked in and it was off and running. And then there's a question, though, at this time, what are you aspiring to be? What is your career goal, if you will, at that time? Definitely. There are two tracks at the University of uh, at Indiana University School of Music. One is an education track if you want to teach music. And the other is the performance track. And I definitely wanted that performance track. So I worked very hard to be an opera, opera major in voice performance. So there's not a third track, which is the business of music. You know, there is arts management. Um, and I'm not so sure about IU. A, num a number of universities do have the arts management programs. Um, ultimately, I fell into arts management. It would have been good if I had taken it. But um, I definitely wanted to sing, and I was lucky enough to get step on some of the main stages to do so. And then how did the University of Wisconsin come into play? So I got my music credits, and my grandma kept saying to me, you know, you should really think of something else. Do business, do communications, do something. And I was really, really um, interested in learning how to write more journalistically, how to be able to make a persuasive case. Um, and so UW-Madison, which happens to be my home state, I'm from Milwaukee originally, as I mentioned, um, had a very strong program. And I decided after I finished my music credits and had my training, I would transfer and get another major at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And so at that point, when you're thinking about the tracks, career paths, when do you start trying to shape that into, okay, what do I do when I finish college? It's a pretty um, prescribed thing. I mean, you start auditioning for agents, you start doing um, competitions. And so I did all of that and I was lucky enough to get some gigs and it was exciting and so forth. But here's what I discovered, Brent, and this is my turn pivot of my career. What I discovered is I'm really just a nice hometown girl from the suburbs of Milwaukee. I really did not like living on the road. I didn't like the uncertainty of the performance. You get sick, you don't go on and you don't get paid. Um, so it's, you know, it's a tough, tough livelihood. And I decided that I, as much as it pained me to give up the performing side, I decided to come back, settle down. I really wanted to have a family, that kind of thing. And I accidentally fell into a position with the Milwaukee Symphony, they needed a director of development. And I didn't even know what that was, frankly, but they called me and said, you know, we know you love the arts, we know you know the arts, you know a little bit about the business of the arts because your mother runs this institution. Um, we need to do a campaign, would you be interested? And at that point I'm going, oh sure, bring it on, what do I know? So they hired me to do a $25 million endowment campaign. Now, this is in the early 1980s, so I'm dating myself for you, Brent. Um, and we were able to finish that within two years. But here's what I did. I started making tremendous connections through the then it was called the American Symphony Orchestra League. Now it's the League of American Orchestras. And I made all these connections and all these new buddies. And one of them ended up moving from the Pittsburgh Symphony to the San Diego Symphony. And while there, the new director of the San Diego Opera said to him, 
I'm looking for a new deputy general director who would oversee advancement development. Do you know anyone? And he said, I know exactly the person for you. You should call that Ann Spira in Milwaukee. So he did. I came out for an interview and I ended up being the deputy general director of San Diego Opera for 31 consecutive Amazing. years. Nobody has had a job for 31 years, Ann. It's incredible. And um, especially not that uh, hometown girl from the suburbs of Milwaukee that, you know, doesn't uh, want to be on the road too much. So that's just amazing. Yeah, it was an exciting journey for me, Brent, because we produced top quality international opera. The same singers you saw on our stage were the same singers you saw at La Scala, Covent Garden, Paris, Vienna, etc. So it was really exciting for me and it really became my home. And so in that role, you're effectively in a general management type role. You were not the fundraiser per se, although you must have spent a ton of time fundraising and and I'd love to just kind of know what what the mix of your responsibilities were in that role. Right. So in most major opera companies, you have the general director who, who oversees both artistic and administration. My general director was really focused on the artistic. So he would do all the casting, all the hiring, all the designers, conductors, directors, singers, etc. And I would oversee most of the administration, but mainly marketing, advancement, board development, strategic planning, all of that. And Brent, while I was doing that, I was very ingrained in the community. And one of the things that I was asked to do was to serve at the, on the UC San Diego Board of Overseers. That's what it was called at the time. Now it's called the Chancellor's Community Advisory Board. But while I was on the Board of Overseers, our new chancellor, our then new chancellor, Chancellor Pretty Kosla entered UC San Diego and I got to know him a little bit. And that's my trajectory from San Diego Opera to UC San Diego. Wow, I don't wanna make that leap just yet, but that is uh, a fun twist of events. And uh, I'll just share, we recently hosted Brittany Snyder, who is an AVP at the Arizona State University Foundation on the, on the Rays podcast. And she got her career started with the Arizona Opera Company and then spent some time with the Austin Opera. And she was telling me that one of the really amazing um, maybe nuances around opera or maybe the art space more broadly is just some of the, the really special experiences that you can create for donors, sort of that salon dinner meets a performance or you've got an operatic you know, appetizer before the 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 dinner event. I mean, just tell me about ways that you sort of creatively um, weaved together those components uh, to create a better donor experience. It's my favorite story because it was my favorite thing to do, Brent. First of all, I've got to meet her. I can't wait to meet her. Um, we had to really educate and excite people about opera. It's not one of those art forms that you come to very naturally. And unless you had some exposure, some experience, there wasn't a whole lot of interest. So I had to create the interest. And the way that I would do it, because I had that whole vocal performing background, I had a lot of insight. But I'll tell you this one story. There was a gentleman, very, very high net worth gentleman who had come to town and somebody said, you need to call Ira. And I said, great, I'm going to call Ira. And I said, Ira, you need to come in and, and 
learn about the San Diego Opera? And he said, oh, my goodness, absolutely not. I would never do that. And I said, eh, just give me give me one give me one opportunity. So here's what I did with Ira. And it's just an example of what I would do with a lot of people. During a rehearsal, I put Ira backstage right at the wings, right at the entrance to the stage. And he could see the stage manager call all the entrances and exits. He could see the conductor in the pit. He could see the stage hands, the wig and makeup people, the artists forgetting to go on and off when they're supposed to and so forth. He saw the real guts of what it, may, what it meant to create opera. And then I had him come for a performance and did the same thing, the real live performance. And at that performance, our principal tenor was freaking out. This hardly happens, but this was happening. And he was taking, it was, it was a performance of Otello. And that's how you say it in, in Italian, Otello. And he was taking like three minutes to curtain. He started unbuttoning his doublet and was taking it off. And we're like buttoning him back up and saying, you're going to be fine, Giuseppe you know. And um, he saw the drama behind it. And we got him on stage. And the guy was brilliant once he got on stage. But this is, a you know, to experience everything from behind the scenes made Ira a big fan. Ira became a major donor. He became a member of our board and was very dedicated for many years. We have to make it come alive. That's what I love to do in anything I'm involved with. So, so Anne, what is the higher ed experience? What is the IRA version of higher ed? Why aren't more donors? And it can't just be, you know, going to a football game. Like, why aren't more donors doing the rehearsal equivalent, coming to class, uh, you know, having the, or maybe they are, and I just need to better appreciate kind of the spectrum of those types of activities. What is that equivalent moment that can really catalyze a relationship and, and lead to the kind of outcome you just described? Well, since it's my favorite thing to do, a lot of our donors are doing that. And it is critical that we, first of all, get to know the heart of our prospects. Um, there's this sort of myth that if somebody was a major in engineering, they will give to engineering. If they were a major in social sciences, they will give to their economics major. But that isn't always the case. And once you find out really what your, your prospect or your donor is all about, you start looking at ways to engage them. So one of the things that we need to do, we were building a great big new amphitheater. I mean, state-of-the-art, magnificent amphitheater. So, you know, that's kind of like my thing. Um, and I would get our prospects in there to see the construction, the groundbreaking, you know, um, what the delays were all about. I mean, really traveled that journey with them. And hopefully, you know, one would actually come and name that theater. And that's what happened. So I think whether it's in science, if somebody, you know, wants to know more about robotics surgery, we would take them into our new robotics surgical unit and, and show them how that's done because there's a lot of demonstration units where you can see the, um, the physicians or the medical students being trained. We have to give them that inside view. It's, there are very few circumstances where someone says, oh, stem cells, oh, okay, well, I'll give you $10 million. You have to really get them involved with the scientists, with the faculty, physicians, with the patients, when the patients are willing so that they can see the journey that must be taken and why it costs what it does and how long it's going to take because of that. It sounds like conducting an orchestra. Definitely. 
many different pieces, many different sections have to harmonize. Everybody play together. Exactly. And so you get roped in as a just a, a pillar of the San Diego arts cultural leadership. You uh, get involved as a volunteer for UC San Diego. And then what? Well, um, during the recession, the Great Recession, much of the art funding hit the skids, just like NIH funding was reduced. The arts funding just dried up. And we were a very high level of production company, big budget. And in the world of opera, you have to book your artists five years in advance if you want to get those same artists that sing at the Met, La Scala, Covent Garden, Paris, et cetera. So we, we had to book far out, which is why we always had a, a long-term strategic plan. But coming out of the recession, it was murder. And we could see that we weren't going to be able to sell as many tickets and raise the kind of money that was necessary to sustain the company at that level. So we had to make a decision in conjunction with the executive committee of the board, the finance committee of the board, the board in general, are we going to continue um, production at the same level and pray that the money comes in? Or are we going to have to lower our standard, perform at a, at a lower standard, but it's okay. You get the young American artists as opposed to the international artists. We had to make these decisions. And the ones who made the decisions for us were really our major prospects because we went and we asked them, would you be interested in continuing support if it was young American singers, et cetera? And basically the answer was no, we want the top quality or we don't want it. And so our board had to make that decision. Do we call it a day with opera? Because basically New York City Opera, all these opera companies around America were ceasing operations because of the same situation. And they decided to cease operations. Um, so at that point, the first day it was announced, I got the call from Chancellor Kosla. And he said, Anne, I think you should consider coming to UC San Diego. And I was sort of, really? Why? I didn't have a career in higher ed. I knew how complex it was. Um, my closest experience were my two children who did go to the UCs. And so I knew a lot about that. But um, he said, come on and let's talk about it. And he was very persuasive. He said, we are a young school. At that point, it was 57 years old only. And he said, we're a young school. We really need to do a multi-billion dollar campaign. I know that you can help advise. You can introduce us to key people and leadership, et cetera. And after a lot of thought about it, I thought, well, this is really exciting because I love excellence. I love working for institutions that are pursuing the stars. And I knew that UC San Diego was one of the most fast, fastest rising academic institutions in the world. And so I said yes. And I entered as a senior executive director of development and created a new area called leadership strategy and engagement. Because I kept saying to our my colleagues in advancement and our chancellor, what we're lacking here is the leadership. The university had not really developed a core of leaders. Again, we're so young. And we went to the top patriarch of the university and said to him, his name is Erwin Jacobs and he's spectacular. He said, Erwin, would you chair this campaign? And he said, no, no, I wanna see you develop the next generation of leaders. I don't wanna always be right there, but I'll be your honorary chair. And with that, we've developed a program of leadership strategy and the engagement, and we recruited 50 top 
alumni and other interested parties to the university as our campaign cabinet, our first part of our campaign cabinet. And that was so successful that we ended up going out to the regional areas. We hadn't really developed the regions where we had the most alumni, like the Bay Area, Los Angeles, New York, uh, D.C., and so forth. And we created campaign cabinet members in each of those areas. So that's what leadership strategy and engagement was about. And the outcome of all of that, Brent, was that we had set a goal eight years ago of $2 billion. We weren't quite sure how the heck that was going to come about, but we set a goal of uh, $2 billion. And three years early, we met that $2 billion goal. So we called a conference, this is right before the pandemic, of our campaign cabinet members. They came in from all over and they said, um, you know what? We should be going for $3 billion. They were so invested at this point. They had such ownership. And at that point, the campaign cabinet, 100 members of the campaign cabinet, because that was the total that we had recruited, had given $665 million at that point. And they said, we should collectively get to a billion. 100 members should be giving $1 billion of this campaign. And as of June 30th, 2022, 100 members of our campaign cabinet gave $1 billion of the campaign. It ended up being a $3 billion result. So that's what I was able to work on with great joy and worked alongside the visionary of this university. Our chancellor is truly the definition of the word visionary. It's somewhat overused at times, but he defines it. And so we were, we had that great success. And I was fortunate enough to then be um, bestowed the title of vice chancellor of advancement. And I've had that for about the last 18 months. Wow. I love that um, story, Anne. And it also makes me wonder, though, you know, there's always this tension in this sector of uh, scale versus top of pyramid principal gifts. And and I, I think it's one of the real challenges of uh, higher ed advancement is that you've got that spectrum of constituencies ranging from your top 100 to your 100 most recent grads. And um, what you just shared is a reminder of how much potential there is to unlock at the top of the giving pyramid. But sometimes it feels like we're chasing the other end of the spectrum with the giving day or the license plate strategies or whatever, you know, selling socks as part of the year end challenge. And it just makes me wonder how many other institutions could uh, really model that top 100 strategy because wow that's a heck of a lot more efficient way to get to a billion than some of the other attempts we've seen it is but i have to say brent that every level of the pyramid is so vital because that pipeline starts when they're students right that pipeline starts with the ten dollars and we celebrate we celebrated at the end of the campaign and during the campaign and we continue to celebrate every gift that comes in because we don't want someone to think that, oh, you know, I'm not part of that top 100. I don't matter. They matter. And we make it a very big point to to continue to let them know that and to celebrate them and to show the impact of their giving because there's collective impact. You know, if you make $100 or a $500 gift and 300 other people do, you can underwrite the basic needs hub for six months, you know, that kind of thing. So 
we really feel that every gift, every person is something to be cherished. And we do try to celebrate that. When you think about common themes that have led to the level of investment and conviction that the top 100 now have, how can you take what you've learned from them and try to scale that to the broader populations? Because the future top 100, there is a different version in every generation uh, and not just the top 100, but the top 1000. So like when they tell you, like when you, when you think about all those conversations, do they ever, do they ever give you, I don't know, ideas for, you know, I'm engaged now, but if you had done this, that, or if we could do this type of thing earlier, maybe I wouldn't have waited so long to be involved. Does that make sense? Totally. And let me tell you, we're thinking on the same wavelength. I, we do need to scale because 100 isn't going to be enough to take us into our future. And we shouldn't always just rely on that 100. What we're doing is looking at our advisory councils. So every one of our schools has an advisory council, engineering, arts and humanities, et cetera. And I'm working with my colleagues um, with the word leadership because leadership comes at every level. And we would love to see leadership more highly developed on these councils. Uh, my dream would be that we had such committed leadership on these councils that they would become the next campaign cabinet, you know, collectively, because you always have your executive and then you have a lot of people. Um, but I know that that model has been done at other universities, some version of that, and it's been very successful. We're young enough now um, to know that we have to do something like that if we're going to continue to develop generations of leadership. So that's how I would scale it. But the other way to do it is when you have initiatives or major projects that need funding, there's two ways to go about it in my world. One, you get your prospect list, grab your dean or your external volunteer leader, and you go and make all these calls, or you create other leadership councils of high net worth individuals who come together you know, with the Dean, explore this initiative. Um, we had one at UC San Diego that I think is an absolute model. It was in bioengineer, excuse me, biological sciences. And they wanted to build a particular entity. And they brought together some of the best of their alumni minds from all the different classes, about 12 of the top to help the Dean think it through. Now they were selected based on their expertise, but also based on their capacity to give. And sure enough, after about six months of very targeted meetings and taking their advice and thinking it through, one of them stepped forward to name this entity. And with a $7.5 million gift, others stepped forward to bring that total up to over 10 million. So that's another way to get people involved and have them know that their expertise is, is as valued as their contribution. Well, that's a, a fine line to walk because I feel like in a lot of situations, people form advisory boards, but they don't really want advice. They want money. Oh, and then that's the problem. Through, you know, you go through the motions and, and the issue is that the kind of people you're describing are busy their time is precious and they are used to, I'm guessing, making decisions, driving executions. So the idea of sort of 
brainstorming with the alma mater around things that likely won't move forward is not it's going to be it's going to have a uh unintended consequence i think and so how do you balance actually getting their advice while also leveraging that as a way to cultivate a relationship that could uh, ultimately result in the kind of philanthropy you just discussed so i'll tell you this little story and it all relates to that brent before i came to the university the initial planning for the campaign was going on and deans were sort of given a goal and they were they were told more or less tell us what your big ideas are and and we'll try to go fund them and that caused tremendous disappointment because they came up with spectacular transformative ideas but we didn't have the prospects to fund them so i want to do that differently this time and this is going to answer your question I want to inspire the deans to create these advisory councils, sort of reconstitute them with those that they can put their plan in front of. And these councils act as the feasibility study in a way, because these are the people that care the most about the Rady School of Management, the Jacobs School of Engineering, and so forth on campus. And if the dean comes forward with something spectacular, but they say, I don't think we can help you raise that money. I don't. I don't see where that's going to come. It's good to take their advice because it saves a lot of spinning of the wheels and heartache. And we're finding that to be very successful. So it, you're right. If you don't want to have an opinion, don't ask. But in so it's, almost like a, it's like a consumer panel where you can mm-hmm. pre-test the concepts to see if they resonate. And if not, course correct versus making a big announcement and hoping. That's exactly right. And you know, uh-huh. there have been times where um, some of my colleagues with different areas of the campus, not philanthropy, but different areas of campus, have gone in front of a council or a trustee board and so forth, and they've presented something with great pride. And they weren't asking for the feedback, but they got it, and it wasn't positive. And they were shocked. And they were, you know, what do we do? And I said, don't ever do that unless you're going to take feedback and adjust. So you have to be careful. I mean, you have to pick your audience very carefully and so forth. But um, I, I do think it's really important to socialize and um, do these sort of many kinds of feasibility studies with those that have capacity to make the difference. Let's talk about uh, Armin Afsahi, some of the conversations we've all been a part of this summer, which is part of the reason that we're reconnecting today. Armin is my friend and my idol. When I first came to UC San Diego, this legendary Armin Afsahi um, was there and he deserved every bit of the legend. He's so spectacular. He's a mentor of mine. Um, When it comes to anything alumni or transformative gifts, Armin has the talent from start to finish. And when I heard your presentation, on a use of AI and so forth at the case conference, I was blown away. So Armin went from being the associate vice chancellor of alumni and many other things to that title at UC San Diego. He ended up at Harvard. Now he's at the University of Chicago over all of advancement. And um, we're in, in touch. And uh, I'm very, very grateful for all that he has done to inspire me and to mentor me. What do you think makes Armin stand out? What are some of the adjectives you use to describe him as a uh, peer and colleague? 
open-hearted, warmth, authenticity, intelligence, dedication, commitment. Armin welcomes you in. It's like in your presence, you feel you're getting the big bear hug and you want to be a part of that. There's so much energy. When I saw him get up and talk to big alumni groups, you know, he was like the grand foodie. He meant it because he is an alumnus of UC San Diego, which we're very, very proud of. Um, but his, um, the way that he would inspire, energize and excite an audience was unique. So Armin could do that one-on-one. He could do that in a group of 10 or a group of a thousand. It's a very special, special talent, but it's so genuine. You just want to be a part of it. I feel that. And anybody listening that has met Armin is smiling and nodding along with everything that Anne's sharing. And obviously we are excited about ways that we can scale some of the very, you know, intimate, positive, emotional experiences you're describing. Uh, and, and I am very bullish that AI can play a big, a big role in that. And we're trying to, you know, have conversations like that one and this one to learn because we do not have uh, the answers figured out yet, but I do think there are themes around synthesizing data and scaling more personalized outreach that just because it's, uh, you know, AI assisted doesn't mean that it's therefore less on authentic. In fact, maybe it can be even more authentic and more consistent than we can be as uh, humans on our own. And so that's some of what we're exploring. I know that your team has been diving into it a bit as well. What what are your overall reactions to the concepts, Anne? Well, I have to tell you this, Brent. I have recently been in a number of conversations with our health sciences area, our medical area. And if they if they can use AI for better diagnosis, for more personal contact, I know it doesn't make sense, but it does actually in some ways, more personalized con- contact with their patients, all of these different uses, it's exploding on the scene and it's useful everywhere. When I saw your presentation and some of the um, thank you letters and so forth that were constructed, it was brilliant because we only have so many people that write these letters and they can get a little repetitive, but that's not going to happen with chat and so forth. The other thing that was so impressive, of course, is that you know, we can use our data and run a propensity to give kind of model. Maybe you choose 16, 20, but with AI, you can use a thousand different sort of statistics and so forth for AI to tell you better. I was also just blown away when I learned that they can get it down to what day should you send to this particular prospect and what hour they'll open it. I mean, that kind of projection, prediction, is going to help us more target what we need to do with greater impact and greater result. Well, I think it's what you described uh, throughout this discussion is, is the more tailored the experience is, the more potential there is to unlock, whether that's your top 100, whether it's some of the uh, the private um, you know experiences that you're describing with, with the opera, kind of wow moments. And the reality is we cannot do it at that level for every individual, but we might be able to make people feel more connected because this idea of a segment of one becomes possible. And stewardship notes should never have the same copy as Brent's. 
because we have different histories, different relationships, different interests, different giving patterns, different fund designations, different event attendance. Like there is so much that we have sitting in these CRM systems that helps discern the unique relationships that we have. But if you're converting that into, you know, dear first name, comma, thank you for your gift of amount, you're only scratching the surface of what we think will now be possible. Absolutely. And you just mentioned relationship, stewardship relationship. I think AI is going to bring us back to that more personalized relationship, which is absolutely vital. I read a book recently. It's actually authored by one of the authors is Nathan Chappelle. And he was our associate vice chancellor of advancement operations and campaign when I started. And his book is entitled The Generosity Crisis, Radical Connection. And it just hit me when I read it because we need to make radical connections with our prospects, with our volunteers, with everybody in our lives. And we haven't been able to do that with spray and pray, you know. Um, and so this is the beauty of using AI and, and understanding how to do that. I'm just learning. Um, so I count on, on you, Brent, and, and my colleagues. Um, but I'm very excited about it. And the faster we can get the knowledge and implement it, the better off we're going to be for these radical connections. I love it. Well, thank you for your willingness to learn and engage in the topic. And we really appreciate your team uh, sharing their perspectives as well. Um, we are at time. This has flown by. And I uh, I just have to ask if people want to stay in touch with you. I know you're active on LinkedIn. And before we conclude, you know, one of your recent posts highlighted the over $500 million that was just raised. So there's clearly a ton of momentum. So, uh, you know, I assume folks can get in touch, but also just tell me about how you're feeling about the growth you all have experienced at UC San Diego. It's, you know, we're just feeling overjoyed um, from 20 to 22, fiscal year is 20 to 22. Uh, our average uh, annual result was 380 million. Last year, 420 million. This past fiscal year, 23, it was... 565 million. So that trajectory is very exciting, especially when a campaign ends. Can we keep that going? Well, we're going to try. Um, we're trying to set the basis of our the quiet phase of our next campaign. So it's important to keep that momentum. And if anybody would like to get in touch with me, they can easily use my um, email address at the university, which is aspira, S-P-I-R-A, at ucsd.edu. LinkedIn, Facebook me, any which way that works. I'm always happy to connect with my colleagues. I love it. And thank you so much for sharing your journey. Uh, and I am going to make sure to connect you uh, to Brittany Snyder from Arizona State. So you all can align around the intersection of opera uh, and advancement, which I did not expect would be uh, such a hot topic for us recently. But what a, what a great journey. And, uh, and And just thank you so much for your time. And thank you, Brent, for all you do. It's exciting to be with you and to work with you. I look forward to staying in touch. And with that, I'm going to wrap today's episode featuring Ann Spira, who serves as Vice Chancellor for Advancement and Executive Vice President at the UC San Diego Foundation at the University of California, San Diego. A little smoother the second time there, Ann. You got it. Thanks, everybody. Take care. <laughs>